I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Hey, this is Outside In. I'm Nate Hedgie here today with Taylor Quimby. Hello. Felix Poon. Hello. And Justine Paradise. Ba, 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 ba. All right, so I've gathered all of you here today because I have a quandary. The other day, I was walking through my local grocery store, the aptly named Good Food Store. Wow, that's right to the point. It's our ripoff Whole Foods. Anyways, uh, you know, I was grabbing my sweet potatoes, my jalapeno, onion. That one looks a little gross. And then I get to the meat section, and I am faced with a choice. On one side, we have the plant-based Impossible Burger, which has got like a bunch of different ingredients in it. And then on the other side of the aisle, we have some ground bison that was raised just north of me on the Flathead Reservation. I mean, the buffalo is definitely more expensive. It's like fifteen sixty-one versus nine ninety-nine, but it is local. And I am faced with a dilemma. I don't know. So your head is like twisting like left and then right and then left and then right. I'm jumping from one to the other to the other. <laughs> like a cartoon. Which one should I get? Which one should <laughs> I get? But really like which one is actually better for the environment? Should I go with the vegan one or should I go with the local one? And for that matter, like which foods, which diets are really the most sustainable? And also, like, does it even matter what we eat? 
And I'm not the only one asking this. We put out a call for questions on our Facebook page, and one of our listeners, Jeannie Bartlett, wondered the same thing. I'd be really interested in your take on the trade-offs between locally raised 100% grass-fed beef versus plant-based proteins. Um, And I'm interested not just in the carbon trade-offs, but also biodiversity, pesticide use, water quality, soil health, too. Thank you. People want to know their decisions make a difference. So today on the show, we are launching a new segment that we're calling This, That, or The Other Thing. It's all about the little choices we make in our lives to try and build a more sustainable world, whether they have any effect and what we can do instead if they don't. First up, we're going to try and figure out what the most environmentally friendly diet really is. I think the most environmentally friendly diet is a regional diet. Vegan. Say vegan as well. Yeah, I say vegan. Cool. I mean, sustainably, oh God, I'd love to say wild game because it doesn't really. There's no agriculture involved in wild game. <laughs> Stay tuned. The feeling I have after I eat fried chicken is very much a guilty feeling. Like fried chicken is the most delicious food in the world to me. But then immediately afterwards, I have like a fried chicken hangover. I mean, does that make sense? Do you guys ever have have foods like that? What if it was local, humanely raised chicken? But it's not, Felix. (laughs) (laughs) So before I try to actually answer this question, I wanted to talk about the strange calculations we all make in the grocery store the mental gymnastics we jump through to eat what we want and still feel good about it. Because we all do it, right? Like, it's hard to be consistent. I have this funny thing where, like, I heard once years ago that shipping by sea is much more efficient than shipping over land. Mm. Therefore, if I'm to buy my wine from somewhere, it should be France and not California. (laughs) (laughs) How convenient. (laughs) Which works out nicely for me because I like Mm. French wines better, uh, which makes me sound like insufferable, I'm sure. I've been doing it wrong all this time. (laughs) I've been picking wine from California off the menu thinking like, well, this is from the same country. It's going to have less fossil fuel transportation costs. But I'm actually, (laughs) oh my gosh. (laughs) Like for me, I have all these different factors that that, uh, factor in when I buy food. There's price. Mm-hmm. And then there's sometimes, you know, local food, especially when it's in season. And then there's what I want to cook. Yeah. Um, because I might want to make a very particular meal that requires ingredients that are not possibly local. Like I am vegetarian, but I also buy and cook meat for my son who is not. Mm-hmm. It is moment by moment in the grocery store. It, it's like a, a whole bunch of things you all have to ho- hold in your head and it's all on you Mm. that that is why i'm anti-guilting is because like we all have to eat and so this isn't like taking a flight you know like a a willy-nilly flight to europe and back a bunch of times and sort of saying like oh gosh maybe i didn't have to like we have to eat it's true but i struggle with it because like i agree with you taylor around not guilting but um it's sometimes people say like food is food you know don't overthink it Mm -hmm. And it, it's like it, it does it does. This is one of the ones that actually does kind of matter. And so on that note, like what is, what is your vote, though? Like, what do you think the most sustainable diet is? I'm I'm going to go. I think it's it's being a locavore. I think it's being vegan. 
Vegan. Doesn't doesn't matter the source. I also I also think like there's tears here. Like obviously this is more complicated than that because you could eat a vegan diet that is also like super unhealthy and full of packaged food. But that wasn't the and question. No, it wasn't the question. <laughs> we are looking at one narrow aspect of how we eat. One <laughs> narrow aspect, which is sustainability. Yeah. Yeah, plant-based. I'm going plant-based then. Yeah. Local vegan. Combine the two. Oh. How are you going to do that in Massachusetts, Felix? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to eat squash and fruit leathers all winter long. <laughs> yeah, no more no more fresh mango, my friend. All right, so now it is time for me to get some answers. And the first person I spoke with was Tamar Haspel. I'm a columnist at the Washington Post and a podcaster on Climavores. Climavores is a podcast that focuses on what we should be eating to help slow the climate crisis. And for Tamar, the answer was very clear. The most environmentally friendly diet is episode over plants are just they tread lighter on our earth and they're responsible for way fewer greenhouse gas emissions she points to study after study after study that shows that global production of plants has a far smaller footprint than most livestock especially beef beef is bad for two main reasons the first is that as cattle eat and digest grass, um, they produce methane as a byproduct of their digestion. That's called enteric methane. And it's an awful lot of methane. And the second reason might is arguably even more important, and that is that it is beef demand chiefly that is driving the deforestation in the Amazon and in some other places. Hmm. Just for listeners who might not know, methane is way more potent than carbon dioxide. And if you're cutting down a massive amount of stored carbon in trees in the Amazon, it's a double whammy, especially considering that Brazil is the top exporter of beef in the world and global demand is growing. So as the world comes out of poverty, which is a very good thing, People eat more meat and they eat more beef, and that drives the the beef industry to have to grow more beef. They need more land, and they cut down the Amazon. What about local grass-fed beef? See, Felix, <laughs> I was I was wondering the same thing, right? Like the the cattle, or in some cases, the bison that I eat, they aren't from a recently clear-cut part of the Amazon. In Brazil, they are from a ranch just up the road here in Montana. I mean the can't be that bad. From a climate perspective, it's not better and it might be worse. Might be worse. So she she says it comes down to how long these grass-fed cows are alive. The faster an animal grows, the less time it's here on this earth burping up methane. And grass-fed animals grow significantly more slowly. And on a per pound basis, the methane impact of those animals is much higher. Does that make sense? Yeah. Although I think I think there's a lot of people that aren't going to like that one. Something similar is also true for many locally grown or organic foods. Like Felix, when I was thinking about why local might be better, I was thinking about transportation. Right, like, you know, you go shopping for apples at the store and they're being driven across the country from Washington state, which is like all the way on the other side of the country. It's a lot of gas. It's a lot of gas. Yeah. 
But studies show that that doesn't actually have a huge impact on the climate. In fact, Tamar says that transportation makes up only about 5% of the total greenhouse gas emissions for many foods. And because it's only 5%, it means that that 5% can be more than overcompensated for if you're growing in a place where you're growing less efficiently. I live on Cape Cod and we have local farms, which by the way, I support um, and and love and go out of my way to shop at. Um, but they don't grow vegetables as efficiently as they grow them in California. The weather isn't right. The soil isn't right. The scale isn't right. So there's no question that the vegetables I buy here are going to have a higher climate impact than the ones I get from California. An inconvenient truth. <laughs> <laughs> that hurts my uh, local sensibilities. It hurts mine too, Felix. Um, but yeah, when it comes when it comes to global emissions, which is what Tamar looks at, it's all about efficiency. Growing the most calories you can on as little land as possible because that protects more forests and prairies, which are way better at capturing carbon than many agricultural fields, even organic ones. In fact, organic farming needs up to 110% more land than big industrialized ag to produce the same amount of food. So with this in mind, Tamar believes that some of the best climate-friendly foods are Can you guess? There's two of them. Corn and soy. Oh, come on, Felix. (laughs) (laughs) You weren't supposed to guess that. You're right. People get angry at me when I write about this. But corn and soy, although, you know, they, we've 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 been schooled to hate them and for good reasons. They they they're grown in these monocultures and there's uh there's runoff from the fields and pollution and and nitrogen loading in in our waterways, but from a food production perspective, they are the best things we have. Corn is the most productive cereal grass and soy is the most productive plant protein. If we ate them as, you know, tortillas and tofu, it would be the most climate-friendly way to feed the planet by a long shot. Yeah, tofu tacos. I thought she was going to say lentils. Lentils are definitely one she also mentions. She's a huge fan of lentils and pretty much like any kind of row crop. So whether it's like sweet potatoes, oats, barley, chickpeas, beans. I mean, when it comes to growing plants, you know, they use comparably less water and fertilizer and they have a high caloric density. But as you guys are probably thinking, there's also some downsides to industrialized agriculture. Emissions aren't the only factor we ought to be thinking about when it comes to eating sustainably. There's habitat loss, there's pesticide use. These are what are known as cumulative environmental pressures. And after the break, we are going to look at a brand new study, one of the first of its kind that actually ranked foods based on these cumulative environmental pressures. And the results were pretty surprising. I'm so curious. But before we go, we want to know, what is your biggest roadblock when it comes to eating more sustainably? Is it money, family dynamics, health? What about ethical farm labor? Shoot us an email at outsidein at nhpr.org, or you can leave us a voicemail at 1-844-GO-OTTER.
Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. Welcome back to Outside In. I'm Nate Hedgie, here with Justine Paradise, Felix Poon, and Taylor Quimby. And we are doing a trial run of a new segment we're calling This, That, and the Other Thing. We're trying to figure out what the most environmentally friendly diet is. And to help us out, I brought in this guy. Yeah, hi, I'm Ben Halpern. I'm a professor here at the Bren School of Environmental Science and Management at UC Santa Barbara. So a few years ago, Ben was like a lot of us trying to figure out the most sustainable way to eat. And so I gave up all meat because I read in the news, you know, that meat is not so great for the environment. And I figured, you know, this is a way that I can make a difference daily in what I do. But then he was like, well, wait a minute, you know, I'm a scientist. I should really make sure I understand what the the data tell me. So I started digging around and there really wasn't the right kind of information that I wanted to make my decision. So thus started down this four-year path of pulling together a lot of data and trying to figure this all out. He and his team were one of the first to rank foods based on their cumulative environmental pressures. So a lot of studies have looked at just climate emissions or just water use or just pollution, and those tell only one part of the story. We wanted to know what the cumulative pressure of all those things together um, mean for food production's uh, impact on the planet. And some of the results of his study were actually kind of surprising. I mean, sure, globally, cows still very bad. But when you add all these things together, other foods start to creep up that that list of things that aren't so great for the planet, like pigs or rice or wheat, things that people probably haven't been paying as much attention to. Wheat? What? Yeah. The most delicious things in the world. (laughs) Okay, so... I want to start with pigs. 
Globally, they produce lower greenhouse gas emissions than cows, but they contribute way more pollution in the form of waste and runoff, which can create things like toxic algae blooms uh, that destroy lakes, rivers, they can wreak havoc on biodiversity. Then there's rice and wheat. Both of those crops are actually really water intensive, and rice production in particular actually has a pretty big footprint when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions. Rice is one of the most grown crops in the world, and farmers will often either burn their fields after harvest or they will flood them to help the stocks decay, which releases methane. Well, also, they just developed a rice variety for after decades of work. Uh, And the idea is not doing these things, like burning fields after harvest and not tilling. Yeah, there are a lot of cool innovations happening in the world of agriculture. Um, I think it's also important to remember that this isn't how most food is produced right now. Uh, That said, there are some bright spots in Ben's study. I mean, obviously, a lot of other vegetables, including corn and soy, but also... Things like shellfish um, actually can have a positive benefit for the environment. This is the best news I've heard all day, (laughs) all year, all my life. It produces, it creates habitat that other creatures can live in, and it actually sequesters, pulls carbon into its shell and locks that up. So it's doing, it's like fighting climate change just by growing. So you can actually eat shellfish basically guilt-free because it is not only not hurting the environment, it might actually be helping the environment and giving you food. I also want to squeeze in one more super eco-friendly meat that is near and dear (laughs) to my heart that both Tamar and Ben suggested. What do you think you're going to say after? (laughs) Is it perhaps deer? So here on the East Coast, white-tailed deer are way overpopulated in a whole bunch of places, and they do significant ecological damage. So when you take one of those deer, you're actually improving Uh, the ecosystem rather than making it worse, both because the deer does damage and because the deer is responsible for methane. So you're taking a methane producer out of production. It's time to learn to hunt. And maybe this is our our conclusion for the most environmentally friendly diet. A tofu taco-eating son of a gun who occasionally shoots a deer and spends late nights at the oyster bar. So mostly vegan. With exceptions for shellfish and venison. And a staple diet that mainly consists of efficiently growing row crops. But that menu also might not be accessible for everyone. Like hunting takes time and money. Some people are allergic to shellfish and even tofu can be hard to find at a corner store. I've been having a hard time finding uh, tempeh. They never have tempeh at my store anymore. Really? Oh, that's a bummer. Yeah. Sorry. Anyway. If you are only in a position to make one or two changes to eat more sustainably, you can try this. First, cool it on the beef. Here's Tamar Haspel, the food columnist. Even if you're buying from the ranch up the road that isn't responsible for deforestation, beef demand is fungible. And every steak you don't eat subtracts one steak from the global demand. Also, try not to waste food. Because fully a third of the food that we grow never gets eaten. It gets thrown away. And uh, and that's huge. So this brings us to the other thing of our new segment, this, that, or the other thing. Does it really matter what I, as an individual, choose to eat? Like, should I even be worrying about food? I mean, this is something that you brought up, Justine, when we were pitching this idea. 
I don't mean to be a wet blanket here, but I don't think we should be doing this at all. <laughs> um, I, uh, Why? Yeah, I don't think we should be doing this uh, because, and not necessarily about food, but like this conceit, because um, the focus on this, that, or the other thing is like just a distraction um, from systemic changes that need to happen which is um you know we've probably heard a million times but Mm -hmm. but i think by doing it we like give an option to like oh let me just check that box and like let myself off the hook ethically here yeah i mean like fossil fuel companies have used this as a corporate strategy right like they want us worrying about our, our diet and our individual carbon footprint if that means like they don't have to worry about it right but but isn't isn't this like the improv comedians would say it's yes and like you know you could spend years working on grassroots efforts and systemic changes but in the meantime you can also just lead by example and and I think people want to know how to do that like we get so many questions in that vein and well that's what that's what everybody I talked to said they all said the same thing it's both yeah. essentially individual action needs to work in tandem with larger scale stuff like advocating for policy changes or legislation like it, it, it still matters. If a few thousand people make a tiny change in their diet, that aggregates to a major change in overall demand. Omer Irfan is a senior correspondent with Vox. He covers science and he compares your personal choices to voting. I mean, it feels like as an individual, just by yourself, you're not going to move the needle. But in aggregate, that's really where you see some of the largest uh, gains that you can actually make, even bigger than large institutions. So it's great that individual choices can make a difference. Like, that that's great to hear. But I do feel like I've taken my personal choices when it comes to food, maybe not as far as I'll ever take them, but I'm pretty square with where I am right now. Mm-hmm. Whereas I'm unsure in a lot of ways when it comes to food systems, how I can be even more impactful on that bigger level or that community level that right. that we're talking about. Like, that's where I feel unsure. That, that, that's, a, that's a great point. Um, and to answer that, I really want to actually focus on food waste. It is the third largest greenhouse gas emitter in the country because when food rots, it produces methane. And we toss out about a third of all the food we buy or grow. And the we is not just like you and me, but like grocery stores, restaurants, farms. So the question is like, how do you reduce that waste? So I want to give you guys a few tips. Uh, First, you can donate or volunteer at your local food bank or food rescue organization. They'll take still good but unwanted food from grocery stores and restaurants and deliver it to hungry families. Okay. And speaking of grocery stores and restaurants, you can also urge them to donate to food banks if they aren't already. And you can ask them to conduct a waste audit. So waste audit is where a business takes a hard look at how much food they're buying versus selling. And it can really help reduce waste and and save on cash. And, like, I want to point out that you don't have to engineer this from scratch. Like, the whole thing about collective action is that a lot of times you just have to look for local organizations that are already doing stuff like this and then ask how you can help. What about composting services? So composting is still better than throwing old or bad food away into a landfill. That's because the process produces way less methane. But there's also this other cool trash solution I want to talk about. It's called anaerobic digestion. Have you ever heard of it before? Sounds like what I do after a big meal. <laughs> <laughs> sounds kind of gross, doesn't it? Anaerobic digestion. It almost sounds like uh, an exercise routine. So, so it's where food scraps are broken down in an oxygen-deprived gas-sealed unit 
called a digester. And then the resulting gases are captured and burned as fuel for, for engines or furnaces. Like, are you guys familiar with the stop and shop grocery store chain? They're everywhere. They have a monopoly on in my hometown. <laughs> yeah. They're very East Coast. Very East Coast. Yeah. So they actually have an anaerobic digester that turns food waste into power for one of its distribution warehouses. Um, and I, I should say, like, there is some criticism about, about these digesters because they do release some greenhouse gases when the fuel is burned, but it's still a lot less than if the, the food just rotted. And you're getting something out of it. Like, rotten food in a landfill accomplishes, I think, nothing. And presumably, you don't have to burn fossil fuels to keep your factory warm. Exactly. Instead, you're, you're burning old bananas. <laughs> Banana powered. But there's also stuff you can do beyond food waste. Right. Like Tamar Haspel, she loves the efficiency of industrialized agriculture, but she also wants to see it get kinder to the environment. You know, there's nothing wrong with growing things at scale. In fact, it has to happen for us to be able to feed eight billion people. So we have to really focus on what growing at scale with minimal environmental impact looks like. Again, you don't have to figure out what this means on your own. You can look for folks who are already talking about these issues and go from there. So how are you guys feeling about this? I, I think that last point helps a lot for me. I will be more impactful if I have developed relationships with other human beings and we brainstorm or put our efforts together. That's nice. I mean, I, I get that, but I wonder if I can play the devil's advocate here. Boo. I think the reason why people do focus on individual choices at the grocery store is because it's already something we encounter on a regular basis. It's a, it's a heavier lift to look for these organizations or start this work on my own. Uh, it's, just, it's just, how can we make it easier? I don't know that it can be. I, yeah, I don't know that it is. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that this is like a, a shift in thinking about like what it means to be a, a citizen. I think the food thing is, the food bank thing is nice because... If I think about like, oh, I want to be helpful in my community with food insecurity, I feel, I've, you know, that's something that I have done and I feel like I know that I can make a, a difference. And part of the problem with climate action is like, oh, I don't know if I can make a difference. And what this reminds us is that some of these other things are important. And it's not like I need to, you know, that like you don't have to be Greta. You don't have to you don't have to revolutionize stuff. You You can you can also take pride in knowing that helping in your community with other things is a part of the climate effort. And maybe that's, you know, an incentive to do it um, because it's approachable. We'll have links to Ben's study, Umer's article, and Tamar's podcast, Climavores, in the show notes. Tamar also recently published a book called Boldly Grow, Finding Joy, Adventure, and Dinner in Your Own Backyard. This episode was produced and mixed by me, Nate Hedgie. The voices you heard at the top were Ellie James Duncan, Mark Troxell, Chris Ryan, and then a couple of people who wouldn't give me their names because I probably made them feel awkward because I was asking random people questions in front of a grocery store. And what, what was your guys' name? Sorry. <laughs> We're gonna totally. Okay, yeah, yeah. See you later. Today's episode was edited by Taylor Quimby with additional editing help from Justine Paradise, Jessica Hunt, and Felix Poon. Rebecca Lavoie is our executive producer. Music in this episode came from Blue Dot Sessions, Sven Lindvall, El Flacco Collective, Future Joust, Spring Gang, 8-Bits, and Ollie. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. That's my favorite band name in there, Future Joust. Future Joust is cool. Future Joust. Future Joust. 
Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25.